So Genesis 22, verse 9. When they, that is Abraham and Isaac, came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid his wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot fathom how much you love us that You would give Your only Son to be a sacrifice for us. It is amazing love. It is hard to fathom or understand. But those of us who believe by faith receive it today. And I pray, God, that Your love would pierce the hearts of all of us today. That it would change us. That it would open our eyes. That it would motivate us. That it would drive us to worship and love you with all our hearts and to love others as ourselves. Speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is an amazing story. It's a, a story with great pathos. That is, it's a story written to evoke emotional response. It does that. It's written to tug at your heartstrings. It's a story that you can relate to in some way. Yet, in addition to its pathos, it demonstrates, it displays incredible truths like the truth of God, the truth of faith, the truth of obedience, the truth of sacrifice, the truth of worship, and the truth of the gospel. I don't have an outline for you this morning. You probably noticed. It's just lines for notes. It's because it's going to be a little bit different than a typical sermon. I, I just want to walk verse by verse through this narrative to expose and to show you various points throughout, make observation, application to our lives, and then show you the greater significance of this story. The title of the sermon is The Test, and it's known as that, The Test of Abraham's Faith. But I have an alternative title that will become... Uh, you, you'll realize as we get later into the sermon, the alternative title is A Father's Love. A Father's Love. And that will, you'll understand that later in the sermon. But let's rush to the passage. Genesis 22, look at verse 1. The first phrase, after these things... This, a phrase like this points us back to context. What are these things? Well, there's three significant events in Abraham's life that you need to understand to feel just the gravitas of this story. Okay, The first event is this. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac is the son of Sarah. You remember the barren one, the one who was told or believed herself she was unable to have children. She finally bears a son, that is Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. He laughs. You remember Sarah laughed at God when God told her that she would have a son in her old age. Well, the joke's on Sarah because she does have a son named, he laughs, Isaac. Isaac's not just a son, he's the son. He's the son of promise. He's the, the covenant son. The covenant promises will be passed on through him. So Isaac is born. That's the first event. The second event that you need to know about is Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. They are sent away from Abraham. Hagar is Sarah's servant. And Hagar was given to Abraham because, remember, Sarah didn't believe the promise of God that she would bear a son. So she said, well, the covenant promises must come 
through Abraham, perhaps Hagar can bear a child in my place, and the covenant will pass on through him. Well, Hagar and conceives, and she has a son named Ishmael. But God reminds Abraham, no, 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 the son Ishmael, the promises are going to come through him. They're going to come through Sarah's son. Nonetheless, Ishmael is born. He's a son of Abraham. And we'll see as the narrative in Genesis unfolds, there's a, a jealous rivalry between the two women, between Hagar and Sarah, so much that it culminates in And God instructs for Abraham to send them away, both Hagar and his son Ishmael. And so the significance of an event like this is that Abraham is left with one and only one son. That is Isaac. The third event that you need to see in context is that Abraham is living among the Philistines. The last verse of chapter 21, before we get to this story, Uh, Verse 34, it says, And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. A sojourner is a wanderer, a nomad, a traveler, without a home. So we see Abraham still doesn't live or own the property that he was promised to, or that he was promised to have. Many days have passed since the covenant promises were made to Abraham, and he is still a traveler, a wanderer. He has these promises, but he hasn't grasped them yet. He hasn't seen them fulfilled. And so a question might be asked, does Abraham still believe? Does he still trust God, despite being a sojourner in this land that he was promised? Well, that leads us to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Does Abraham still trust God? So it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, what does it mean that God tested him? There's an important verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17.3 says, As the crucible is for silver, and as the furnace is for gold, so the Lord tests hearts. We understand what a crucible does to silver, what a furnace does to gold. It purifies it. It proves it. And that is exactly what God intends to do with Abraham's faith. He intends to prove it. You know, sometimes God brings heat into someone's life to prove their faith, to prove that they are truly trusting Him and going to obey Him. And we know sometimes that heat hurts. Sometimes it hurts. You know, loyalty to God is easy. Loyalty to God can be faked when the going is good when it's comfortable to be a Christian and live in a culture that widely accepts Christian morals, Christianity. But the day comes when God turns up the heat. Let's test that faith. Sure, it's easy to be faithful when things are comfortable, when the going is good. But what about when the going gets tough? What about when sacrifices need to be made? What about when you need to count the cost? Let's see if your faith comes out as pure gold or pure silver. And so that's what God is going to do in Abraham's life. He's going to turn up the heat to test his faith. But how? How is he going to test Abraham's faith? Keep looking at the passage. He tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. This is direct revelation. God is speaking to Abraham. Note The last time that God spoke to Abraham directly, he lost a son. The last time God spoke to Abraham directly, he told him, hey, listen to your wife Sarah and send away Hagar and Ishmael. And we're told in that account that it grieved Abraham for the sake of his son. What does God want from him now? Perhaps the other one. Look at verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
those words cut like a knife. And notice they went deeper and deeper and deeper. Abraham, take your son, not a son, your son. Not one of your sons, Abraham, your only son, Isaac, specifically. And not just your only son. Abraham, understand this, is no child hater. The one that you love. You need to know something. This is the first time in Scripture that the word love is used. First time. First time the word love is used in the Bible. And you know what it's used in reference to? Not a husband's love for his wife. Not a mother's love for her children. It's used in reference to a father's love for his son. Those fathers out there, you, you know this kind of love. Your boy. Oh, your boy. The one you held in your arms when he first came out of the womb. The one that you've seen grow up. The one who's so excited to tell you about the adventures he's been through. That cute boy who has grown to be a man, take on responsibility. You've seen him grow intellectually, athletically, and in stature before your very eyes. Him. You love him. You love him. God knows that. The Father's love for a son. You could imagine that when God asked Abraham to give his son as a sacrifice, he would have gladly put himself on that altar instead. Would have said, no, 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 take me instead of him. You fathers out there, you would do the same, no? Say, no, 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 I'll die. I'll die, but not my son. This is a great Great test. A big ask. An unimaginable request from God to offer His only Son, His beloved Son, as a sacrifice. Not only do we have the, the fact that He loved His Son, but this is the Son of promise, you remember. God promised that through Isaac... Abraham's offspring would be blessed. And that the covenant promises would be passed on through Isaac. This is the son of covenant. This isn't just any son. So what must be going through Abraham's mind? No doubt grief, confusion, maybe. Questions, concerns. What did I do wrong? What are you talking about, God? You promised that it was this, through this son that the covenant would be passed down. Perhaps maybe Abraham is asking a question that is notorious through the ages. How could a loving God ask something so unfair of me? Well, we need to wait until the end to determine if this is a fair request or not. But just think about what Abraham could have said back to God after this request. But God, you promised. You promised. You've already taken a son from me. He's all I have. Please, anything else, take me instead. What could Abraham have done? What could Abraham have done after this request? He could have run away like Jonah from the Word of God. He could have said, this is all too much for me. You made promises, and it looks like you're not going to keep them, God. You asked me to give up my, my land, my family, to be a sojourner in a foreign place. You've asked way too much of me. You've already taken a son. Now you want the only one I have left? He could have given up on God. What would you have said or done? What would you say? If a request like that comes to you, to give up your most prized possession, not just a possession, but a person, the one you love most, 
Put yourself in Abraham's shoes here. Would you say no? Would you ask why? Would you run away? Would you give up on God? Would you disbelieve and distrust His Word? We see no such thoughts, words, or actions from Abraham. What does Abraham do? Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Wow. He didn't just get up on time. He got up before time. He rose early. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham obeyed immediately. We do not see him ask why. We do not get his thoughts. We see his actions. He does exactly what God required of him. He does not hesitate, but he wakes up early. What an example. What an example of faithfulness, of conviction, of trust in the midst of adversity. God, I don't know what you're going to do here. I don't have the answer. This is a mammoth request, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to obey your word. I'm going to do what you've asked. Every bit of it. You know, some of you don't have the answers right now in your life. You're going through difficulty. And you find it hard to trust God. Hard to obey Him in the midst of difficult circumstances. Would you learn from Abraham here? And obey even in the midst of the unknown? When you're unsure, trust God and obey His word. Walk obediently to Him. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from from afar. The drama is building. Three days of anticipation. That's a long time. Three days is enough time to change your mind. To go wander somewhere else. To compromise. But no, for three days, Abraham and his crew, they travel to the place until they see it before their eyes. There it is. The mount in Moriah that God has chosen for the sacrifice. I didn't mention the significance of Moriah. The land of Moriah. You know what that would later become? Jerusalem. In fact, Solomon built his temple on top of a mount in Moriah. And Jewish tradition tells us that it was the exact same mount that this offering of Isaac took place. So that's where the temple was built. This is a place of great significance in Israel's history. A place where future sacrifices would take place on this mount in Moriah. Abraham sees it and he knows this is the one the Spirit confirms. And so what does Abraham say in verse 5? He says to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. This is an incredible statement by Abraham. I want to point out a few things. First of all, he leaves his men behind. He knows they can't come. They can't bear this. They might try to interfere and stop him from doing what God has commanded him to do. So this is something he has to do alone with his son. The second thing is that Abraham refers to Isaac as the boy. But don't be mistaken. Isaac is not a child or child-aged. He is at this point, most scholars would agree, between the ages of uh, 20 and, and 30 years old. He is a young man. In fact, that same word that's translated boy here is translated young men in verse 19. Isaac's old enough and he's strong enough to be able to carry the wood for the altar on his back. And he does in verse 20. So Isaac is no child or boy. He's a young man. The third thing you need to know is that Abraham does not lie to these men. He is going to go over there, 
and he is going to worship. Do you know what worship means? It means to bow down or surrender. Is there a greater display of worship than a man who's willing to bow down and surrender his only son to God? That's worship. That is, I would argue, the epitome of worship, of of what a man could offer. That which is most prized to him. You need to know something today. That just because you came to church, just because you're here today, just because you're sitting there, does not mean you've worshipped yet. You can come to a Sunday morning service, you can mouth the songs, you can say hi with a smile to a few people that you run into, but you have not worshipped until you've figured to bow down and surrendered your heart, have my heart, here's everything. Everything that I hold valuable, everything that I have that's prized, everything... Here it is, God. That's worship. When you not only sing the songs, but you mean the lyrics. When you sit here under the preaching of the Word and you have your heart in your hand going, God, I surrender. I submit my will to Yours. That's worship. When you've not come to church saying, what can I get out of it? What's in it for me today? I hope He sings the songs that I like. I hope the message makes me feel a kind of way. That's not worship. Worship is giving more than it is getting. It's sacrifice. It's surrender. You haven't worshipped. No, I'm sorry. You have worshipped. You've just worshipped someone else. Could you imagine if somebody walked in here today with a Buddha statue in one hand, a picture of Mother Teresa in the other, You know, maybe a a figurine of Mary, Mother Mary, somewhere in their pockets, and they sit there, they're ready to receive God's Word. We would go, that's that's unbelievable. You're bringing false idols into God's house. How many times do we do that on Sunday mornings? We don't bring the actual statue or the figures, but we have idols that we're bringing into God's house. In fact, some of us would dare to walk into the house of God, and instead of laying our lives on the altar giving Him everything. We put ourselves on the throne. Say, it's all about us. This whole service needs to cater to me. It's about how I feel. No, no, no. Worship is surrender and bowing down. It is God. You've not worshipped God, friend, until you've surrendered that idol. You've surrendered that sin that you're harboring. You've surrendered your, even your most prized possessions. You're holding it with an open hand, God, saying everything is submitted and surrendered to your will, God. Every part of my life. That's worship. And Abraham intends to do that on that mountain in Moriah. Abraham doesn't lie. He promises to return, I don't know if you noticed, with Isaac. He plans to bring Isaac back. He truly believed that God would work a miracle that his son would be somehow returned to him, even after death. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us he anticipated resurrection. Well, God must raise him from the dead because he, God made a promise and he will fulfill that promise, even if I kill my son. Wow, it's incredible faith. Abraham knew that was what was required of him. He was asked to sacrifice his only beloved son in an act of pure worship to God. And he obeyed, trusting God with the greater outcome. So look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both, they went both of them together. Isaac bears the heavy load, the wood. His father carries the lighter weight, the flame and the knife. And they start walking side by side together. The author wants you to notice something. Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father. In the Hebrew, it's Abi, which we're familiar with, the the Greek transliteration, which is Abba. This is the personal and intimate reference of a father. 
Abi. And Abraham responds personally and intimately. He says, here I am, my son, Ibani, my son. Isaac asks this question of his Abi. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac is no fool. He's not being led naively. He knows what's required for sacrifice. Abi, where's the lamb? Wait a minute. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham responds to his son. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. I beni, my son. Abraham doesn't lie here either. He is confident that God will provide a sacrifice for himself. Whether it is the son of promise that was provided to him. His son is a stewardship. His son isn't his, it's God's ultimately. So there's one provision. If he has to kill his son, God provided himself a sacrifice. Or somehow, some way, a substitute will be delivered on that mountain. Either way, what Abraham said is true. God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Just as God always does. God always provides a sacrifice. Would you have been uh, pleased with that answer if you're Isaac, Abraham's son? Or would you maybe ask some more questions? I would. Any other son would go, well, wait a minute. I know what goes on around this place. We're in Canaanite country. Child sacrifices take place in this country. I don't know. What do, you, what do you mean that the sacrifice will be provided for me? I, I'm not moving. I'm not moving, Dad, until you show me that there's going to be another sacrifice. I think Isaac is beginning to understand what his father is saying at this point. But Isaac is no other son. Look at the next phrase. It is repeated again. After Abraham's response, they went, both of them, together. They started up the mountain together. After Abraham's response, they continue up the mount together. The author wants you to see something that is shocking. The absolute trust and willing submission of Isaac to his father. He says no more words. He doesn't question anymore. They walk up that hill together. His question is answered in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. There's your answer, Isaac. There's the sacrifice that God provided you. Remember how old Isaac is. 20 to 30. Abraham is 120. Because he was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Think, think Isaac could have gotten away? Think Isaac could have fought his father and run? Absolutely. But Isaac being a young man, greater in strength than even his father, submits to the point of death. Submits his will, trusts his abi to the point of death. Verse 10, the, the drama is building. Verse 10 says, Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Why doesn't Abraham take the fire? You remember God asked for a burnt offering? Before the altar is lit with flame, the animal must be slain. The animal needs to be cut at the throat, needs to bleed out and die before the altar is lit. And so before Abraham lights the fire, 
you know, maybe perhaps he would favor that because he wouldn't have to look at his son or actually, you know, actively commit the, the murder. He could just throw the flame and walk, look away. But no, he knew what was required of him. He had to take the knife to his son's throat. He had to pierce him. Up until this point, Abraham is absolutely willing. He has demonstrated absolute submission to the will of God. He has worshipped. He has bowed down and surrendered his only and beloved son to God. Incredible. It is clear who Abraham loves the most. He loves, he fears God. So with the knife likely to his boy's throat, getting ready to kill him, God interjects. Look at verse 11. But, this is one of the great contrasting conjunctions in Scripture. But, the angel of the Lord called to him. That word called is shouted to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. The fact that there needed to be a shout from heaven indicates that Abraham was ready, likely even with the knife, close to his son's neck. He needed this startling interruption to stop. And he does. Here I am. He got this shout from from who? Did you catch who's speaking here? The angel of the Lord. By the way, not an an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. Notice what the angel says after Abraham responds and says, Here I am. He says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from who? From me. Who is this angel that would receive a burnt offering or a a sacrifice of worship to himself? Never in the rest of Scripture will you see God, God's holy angels redirect worship to themselves. They always redirect it back to God. But in this instance, this angel said, you've not withheld your only son, your son from me. Who could this be? The one who knows and sees not just Abraham's actions, but his heart. He can see his faith. He knows that he was willing to the point of death. This is no ordinary angel. This is what theologians call a theophany. That is an Old Testament appearance of the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God. God was there. He was present. He was an eyewitness of Abraham's faith. He saw his actions. He saw his heart. Abraham has been tested and his faith has come out like pure silver and pure gold. He knows that Abraham loves him the most. He's willing to give up everything, even that which was most precious to him, for him. We see here that God never planned for Abraham to kill his son. That was not in his plan. The test had the purpose of proving what God already knew was true, that Abraham believed, that he had faith. And the obedience just proves it, is evidence of true faith. Abraham believed, and it was his faith that counted him as righteous. And so God did not intend for Abraham to kill his boy, but look at verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Here's a substitute sacrifice. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
God did provide a sacrifice for himself. It just wasn't the boy. It was a ram. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. You might be familiar. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And the author gives us some commentary here. He says, as it is said to this day. People keep saying that, by the way. They keep saying, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Because God does provide. He always has and He always will. By the way, the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish tradition, it is, this phrase is still said to this day, and it's in reference to the mount in Moriah, the temple. God provides, Jehovah Jireh, referring to the sacrifices year after year made to atone for sin. God has proved Abraham's faith. Abraham has passed the test. God has provided a substitute instead of the boy. And now God reaffirms his promises to Abraham. Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. This is how we know it is truly uh, an appearance of God. He's saying, by me, there's no, other, no one higher than God. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. These words will be familiar too. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The Abrahamic covenant reaffirmed to Abraham. By faith, Abraham grasped these promises and by faith, he continues to hold them. It's not just a faith that's a rational assent. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that is proven. James refers back to this incident and writes about how Abraham's obedience was proof, was evidence of his faith. The works completed his faith in in the sense that it was fully manifest through obedience. A faith that does not work is dead. It's no faith at all. But the faith that produces obedience is alive. And so, not because of the condition of obedience did God give these promises, but because of what the obedience pointed to, which is the faith that Abraham had. And that was counted to him as righteousness. And so Abraham gets these promises again from God. In verse 19, it says, Abraham returned to his young men with Isaac, just as he had promised. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba, again in the notes, as a sojourner. Still doesn't own that land. It's a wonderful story of faith, of commitment, of conviction, of of counting the cost, a willingness to sacrifice it all for the sake of God. But you need to know something. There's greater significance in this story. It should have sounded familiar to you. You know when you see somebody, just happened to me the other day, that guy looks familiar. Gosh, I can't peg it, but I've seen him before. I've met him before. Or man, that song, that sounds familiar. What is it? If you're a Christian, this story should be having that kind of effect on you. This all sounds very familiar. After the test, Abraham was promised, in your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What Abraham didn't know is that the test was also a display of how that promise will be fulfilled. See, this story of a father and his son points forward to another story of the heavenly father and his only begotten. Like Abraham, 
the heavenly Father has an only Son. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. You remember when I said that the first mention or the use of the word love in the Old Testament was this passage. You know what the first use of the word love is in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Same thing in the Gospel of Mark. First mention of love in Mark is Mark 1.11. The voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Same thing in Luke. Luke 3.22. The voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Reference to a father's love for his son. The heavenly Father for Jesus. Jesus tells us that this is a love he knew before the foundation of the world in John 17, 24. There's not a higher or greater love than the heavenly Father's love for His only Son. And so why did His Son come down? Why did the Father send Him down? Jesus tells us in Matthew 20, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son came down to be a sacrifice. But was that Son sent against His will? In other words, did Jesus, was Jesus unwilling to do what His Father asked Him to do? No, He was obedient, submissive to the point of death. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from Me but I lay it down by my own will. Just like Isaac willingly walked with his father up that hill, Jesus willingly, submissively walked by his father's side to the point of death. Think about even the place of sacrifice. A mount in Moriah. Sure, the temple still stood on that same mount that Abraham offered the sacrifice, but another mount... Another mount called Golgotha in Moriah would be the place of Jesus' sacrifice. How about the wood on his back? Isaac bore the wood for his altar, and Jesus bore the wood of the cross, his altar, on his back. How about the question with the reference to Abba? Isaac asked his Abba a question, but he was willing to submit regardless of the answer. And so Jesus asked Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Will you remove this cup from me? Yet not what I will, but what you will. I will submit. I will go to death. Isaac was bound to the wood of his altar. He did not resist, although he had the strength to break free. Jesus Christ, with legions of angels at his disposal, the power of deity, pulsing through his veins. He did not resist when he was bound to that cross. And the father grabs the knife. This is the turning point. This is where one story breaks from the other. Because if you remember, God stops Abraham from killing his son. God stops him and provides a substitute. In Jesus' case, God does not stop. The son is pierced. Isaiah 53 says it was the father's will to crush him. In a sense, God told Abraham, you don't have to kill your son. Here's mine instead. Is it unfair for God to ask Abraham to give up his only son? Only if he was himself was unwilling to give up his. But he did. And saw it through. And so, the son is the substitute. The son becomes the substitute. On another 
hill in Moriah, where Israel makes sacrifices year after year to atone for their sin, God makes his sacrifice once and for all. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And can you imagine what the Father ready to pour his wrath out on his son, even in the midst of pouring his wrath out, he looks into his son's eyes and his son asks one more Abba question. And what is it? Abba, why have you forsaken me? And yet the father sees it through. He continues to crush him. He allows his own beloved son, his only begotten son, to die. And you should ask, why? Why would God do that to his only son? Why? I left the gospel out. I left the gospel out when we were going to the gospels and recounting when the first occurrence of the word love shows up in that gospel. You may have noticed, I left out John. And who's John? John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the apostle of love. I would argue... Maybe there's no other person in history who knew and was more acquainted with God's intimate and personal love than the Apostle John. And you want to know the first time that the Apostle John uses the word love in his gospel? It might be a verse you're familiar with. For God so loved the world. How much does he love the world? That he would give his only begotten Son. Why? So that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Why would God give His only begotten Son as a sacrifice? Listen to this and allow this knife from God's Word to pierce your heart because He loves you. He loves you. That's why he was willing and the son willing too to give him up as a sacrifice, a substitute for you so you would not have to pay for your sins. So you would not have to suffer the wrath of God that he suffered. He loves you more deeply and further than you could ever begin to fathom or understand so much that he'd give his only son for you. He loves you. Oh, He loves you. That's why this is a story of a father's love for his son. And it's a story of his father's love for you too. Because God was willing to go through with it for your sake. This is love. Not what you see in the movies. Not what you hear in the fairy tales. Not in that person you're searching to get something from. This is love. Not that you love God but that He loved us and sent His Son. 1 John 4, uh, 9 and 10. Uh, God sent His only Son in the world so that this is the love of God. Sorry. It was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son in the world so that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is to receive the wrath, receive the punishment in our place. That is the gospel, and that is love, and that is what this test points to, points forward to. We can't help but see it. We can't help but look at this incredible father-son story and, and see the fuller picture in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice made for us. Not to mention even that Abraham expected resurrection from Isaac. And Jesus Christ actually did raise from the dead. So the son is not dead, but he is alive. He is the reigning king who will come back for his people. This is incredible love. And I just want to call you, unbeliever, if you've been struck by this love for the first time, if this has really convicted you and pierced your heart, I want you to receive this by faith. This incredible display of love, this sacrifice is the only way that you can be saved from your sins. It's not by your works. 
as Tim had prayed at the beginning. It's not based on anything you do, but it is received by faith, just as Abraham received it. Believe God today. Believe in Jesus Christ, the only substitute who can take care of your sins. Receive Christ today. And for us Christians, believers who have been struck afresh by this love, reminded of God's love for us, the great sacrifice that He made for us, you have no excuse. Zero. We have no excuse to not surrender all of our lives back to God. To not be willing to sacrifice anything for Him. We have no excuse to not love other people. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May this love not just remind us uh, theoretically, but remind us as we live our lives to be motivated. To be motivated to worship. To motivated to love our spouses. Husbands, be motivated to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Sacrificially. Fathers, be willing to love and give for your kids. Sacrificially, just as Christ has loved us. Mothers to your children. Wives to your husbands. Neighbor to your neighbors. Brothers and sisters to one another. May this love motivate us to love sacrificially. To come to church not just to get what we want or to feel a certain way, but to give, to serve, and to surrender. How deep the Father's love for you. Do not travel far from that hill in Moriah where He gave His only Son to make a wretch like you His treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have no excuse. Your love for us is beyond what our words can say to appreciate. And um, we just are so thankful and overwhelmed by the great sacrifice you made for, our sin, uh, for, for us to save us from our sins. And God, I just pray that that love would just sink into our hearts like a knife and that it would, it would pierce us, that we would surrender idols, that we would surrender sins that we're harboring, that we would give ourselves wholly in complete surrender to you, to your mission, to your cause, and to others before ourselves. Help us to love like you love, sacrificially. And so that even through trying times, even when circumstances are difficult, though we may be tested, that we would endure and that it would prove our faith pure, pure like silver, pure like gold. I pray that for every single person here today. In Jesus' name, amen.